Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 35. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is the word of God. Good afternoon again, New Hope. It is um, really, really good to be with all of you, to, to gather and worship together. Um, if you're visiting with us, if you're, if you're new here, or if you just recently started coming out, um, we're especially grateful that you'd be here with us, and we want to uh, extend a welcome to you, and we want to get to know you. So if you have time after this gathering is over um, to hang out and get to know each other, that would be great. Last week, we started a very super short mini-sermon series called A Place at the Table. And what we've been doing since last week is we've been thinking about the meaning of the Lord's Supper, otherwise known as communion, also known as the Eucharist or the Lord's Table. We've been meditating for a while on this ordinance, or some call it a sacrament, and thinking about what it means for us and why we do it. We're going to wrap up that mini, super mini series today. Next week, May 7th, Daniel Lisa, who I saw here earlier, he's, he might be in the back. Daniel Lisa is going to continue the theme of food and eating, in a sense. And he's going to take us to John 21. He's going to preach from John 21, where we see the resurrected Jesus Christ eating breakfast, of all things, with his disciples. And then telling his disciple Peter to feed his sheep. And then, on May 14th, the following week, we're going to be kicking off a new sermon series. It's a longer-term sermon series called Free for Life. And that's going to take us through the book of Galatians. Paul's epistle to Galatians, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I think I say that often. Whenever I like, introduce a book, I'm like, oh, it's one of my favorite books. But it really is. And what we're going to be looking at in that sermon series is we're going to look at, at the freeness of God's grace and also the freedom that we get that we receive when we receive God's grace. I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you are too. But for today, we're jumping back into the Lord's Supper. Please pray with me as we begin. Lord Jesus, we are, we are here trusting that you have gathered us. And although we come into this space here today, having had a ver- so many different kinds of weeks are represented here, Lord, for some of us, this week has been a battle So for some, it's been marked by extreme loss, loss so painful and difficult that we're not even sure how to process it. For others, Lord, this this, this has been a week of celebration. 
a week of new life, a week of joy. And, and for most of us, I, I, I suppose it's, it's been somewhere in between. Maybe there's been some monotony, and there's been temptations, and there have been failures, and there have been disappointments. There's also been encouragements and successes, major challenges. Whatever we've experienced this week, Lord, we trust that you have brought us together here to meet with you. And we trust that what you have for us as we gather together is going to be good for us. We trust that your word is like food. It feeds us. It's bread, and it's bread that we need. So would you please feed us? God, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you fill us with your Spirit so that your word would not just be received by us, but that it would be understood and loved and responded to with faith and obedience? So fill us with your Spirit so that the words that come out of our mouths would, would be words of life. Words of wisdom, your words spoken through us. Would you please do that, Lord? And, and as I preach your word, I ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So why are we talking about the Lord's Supper? I explained last week, I'm just... Mention it again, a few reasons. One, um, it's because there, there's sometimes a, a good deal of confusion around what the Lord's Supper means. If you walk up here to the front, you'll see that there's a table with some bread and some very little cups with juice in them. What does that mean? Why do we do this? Some of us have been doing it for years, and we're still not even sure why we do it. So there's some confusion. For some of us, maybe it's not confusion. It's just empty ritual to us. We do it almost mindlessly. We don't mind it but we're not really sure why we do it or what we're really meant to get out of it. It's a very simple ordinance, and, and, and the simplicity of it can, in fact, deceive us into thinking that it's meaningless. It's so far from meaningless. Another reason we want to talk about the Lord's Supper is because it is, in fact, a central aspect of our life as disciples. It really is. Jesus made a big deal about it. He talked about this and introduced this into the life of the church in his final moments in fact, in his final hours, I should say, on earth. And, and by the way, Jesus hates empty rituals. Jesus hates religious rituals that are just done for no reason or somehow to gain favor with God. He hates empty rituals. He was always slamming them. And yet he gives us this ritual, which means for us that it must be something special. And it means for us also that there must be blessing in it. We must expect him to bless us through this ordinance. There's a, there's a richness of beauty and significance in this simple ordinance. And I was hoping that last week and this week we'll be able to see more and more of that. All right, so last week what we saw is that every time we take the Lord's Supper, here's what we're doing, a few different things. We saw three things last week. Every time we take this Lord's Supper, we are remembering Christ's sacrifice. He died in our place. So in the same way that in, in the book of Exodus, we read about God's people facing the danger, the threat of death, and God says to them, listen, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to send an angel. I'm going to send death upon Egypt. And, and, and God's people at that time were slaves in Egypt. 
God says, I'm going to send death upon Egypt, and the firstborn in every family is going to die, but here's how you escape death. He says to his people, the Israelites. He says, kill the lamb, take the blood of that lamb, and paint it on the outside of your door. And they did that. And every place that, God's, uh, that, 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 that God saw that, that blood painted over the doorway of a home, he said, I will pass over that home. Death will not touch that home. The eldest son will not die in this home. And for years after that, a thousand plus years in fact, the Jewish people commemorate that awesome event. They commemorate it by taking the Passover. They commemorate it by taking the Passover. And what we saw last, last week is that Jesus is eating the Passover meal with his friends And he repurposes the Passover meal. And he says, look, from now on, when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, it's not just supposed to remind you of what I did when I rescued you and I saved your lives when you were in Egypt and I spared you. He said, from now on, it's meant to remind you of the sacrificial death that I'm going to die. Jesus himself, the real perfect lamb of God, would very soon be killed, spill his blood, so that all of his friends, all of his people who trust in him will not face death. In fact, we'll have eternal life. So every time we take this cup, we take that bread, we're remembering Jesus' perfect sacrifice. But we're doing more than that. We're also recognizing that we're part of a body. Every time we take from the same piece of bread, we rip pieces off of it, we take a cup, we sit down, we wait, we pray, and then we all eat and drink together. You know what we're telling the world? We're saying to ourselves and to the world and to the Lord, we recognize that we are part of one body. One body joined together by faith in one Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a family meal that's meant to unite us and to proclaim our unity to the world. So that's the second reason. But there's a third thing that happens here when we take the bread and the cup. Every time we take the bread and the cup, we actually experience this. Jesus is reassuring us of his love. Every time we read these words, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. We take and we eat and we drink. We're reminded, Jesus himself is communicating to us, I love you. And you know what? I still love you. Even after the week you had, I still love you. Even though I know what's ahead for you and I know what you're going to do in the future, I still love you. My covenant with you is unbreakable. Let's look at a few more things that happen when we take the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at four things today, okay? The first one is this. When we eat the Lord's Supper, we are resting from work. We are resting from work. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says to many, many people, a crowd much bigger than this, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, everyone. If you're weary and you're burdened down, you're carrying huge weights on your back, come to me, I will give you rest. And and those words, I believe, are also captured right here in this supper, in this bread and in this cup. You know, the eating supper meant ceasing from work. At least it did in the the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, where, where Jesus was living Eating supper meant resting. When do you eat supper? It's when you're done. 
You're done. You finish the day's work. You go home. You're tired. And you sit down to enjoy a meal. Eating supper meant resting for Jesus, too. This is captured. It was very significant in that culture, in fact. And it's captured even in the way that they ate. Look at what it says in Luke 22. We've read this passage a few times already over the, oh, from last week to, to today. Luke 22, verse 14 to 15. It says, And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So it's the, it's the night that he would be betrayed. He gathers with, his, with his, his friends to enjoy the Passover meal together, remember, which, which reminded them of God's rescue, and he was going to repurpose this meal so that it would remind his apostles and remind us of the rescue that he would bring by his own death. What does he say? He says, I have desired, earnestly desired to share this meal with you. And it says he reclined at table. Well, maybe you know this, but for Jesus and his culture, it was very common to, recline, to lay down on a, on a low kind of couch almost at the side of a table and eat. They didn't pull up a chair. They'd pull up a little couch and lay down. So, so even their posture communicated something. We're going to be here for a while. <laughs> We're going to rest. This isn't dinner on the go. They didn't eat dinner out of, out of paper bags that they, that they got through a window at the drive-thru. The meal would take a long time to prepare. They'd get together, wash their feet. I assume their hands, too. I hope. And lay down and start eating. Start resting. To some degree, I think we've lost this in our culture. Um, um, for some of us, maybe eating is more just about refueling. Some of us think a lot about what we're taking into our bodies, which is great. You're thinking a lot about, like, what's, what are the ingredients? What's going on? You know, what exactly am I putting in my body? What's going to maximize the amount of energy and, that, that I can you know, want to eat well, which is fine. But I think that we start to think about food as if it's just about refueling, just about keeping us alive. So, so we often eat when we're kind of on the go from one place to the next. Or, or we eat at our desks while we're eating. How many of you ate at a desk today at all? Did any of you? It's okay. You don't have to eat. It has to be afraid. Yes, I did too. How many of you ate in your car this week? Anyone eat in their car? Yeah. New York, right? People eat walking down the sidewalk, right? I don't mean just ice cream. I mean like a burrito or like, or like pizza with a plate under it as they hustle back to get back to work. Our meals in our culture can, can be unwrapped and held in one hand while we drive. In fact, just this past week, I ate a, a slice of pizza while I was driving to, to, I think, to go pick up my kids. And uh, one of my neighbors saw me pulling out with a slice of pizza in my hand, and they gave me a look kind of like, oh, you know, like they were judging me. For it. And I'm like, come on, you've done this too. All of us have driven with, maybe I'm the only one, I don't know. I, I think we've all driven with some kind of, you know, eating, because we, we, ha- we have to hurry up. For some of us, a family meal means scarfing down chicken McNuggets in, in the back of the minivan on our way to soccer practice or to school. But eating in ancient cultures especially, it was about resting. It was a break from work. It, 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 was, it, was, about, it was about ending your day with a time of rest. So when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And, and here's, here's the point that I'm, I'm, I'm getting at. 
when we come to this table, we are accepting and we are reclining on the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see that? We are, remember he said, every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, Jesus said, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Apostle Paul said that actually. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what God tells us is happening here. Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. He died to pay for your failure and my failure to obey God's law perfectly. And, and he died so that, so that he would pay the penalty and, and so that we would receive his perfect record of perfect obedience to God's word. You see, he did all the work. He says it's finished now. All the work necessary to make you acceptable to God, all the work necessary to make you a member of his family, Everything necessary so that you can, in the words of of Psalm 23, so that you can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's all been done. There are no loose ends to tie up. There are no outstanding projects that need to get finished. So what does that mean? That means for us, oh, we can eat now. The Lord's Supper, listen, the Lord, for some of us, maybe we grew up feeling like every time you take the Lord's Supper, it's about you trying to muster up enough emotion and fervor for Jesus. It's like you sit there with the cup and the bread, and you're like, what am I supposed to be feeling now? i got to feel more. i got to love Jesus more. I've got to somehow work myself up emotionally so that Jesus means more to me right now. It's not a work involved in that. And I'm saying, no, I think that when Jesus calls us to the table, he's calling us to actually rest on what he has already done. So listen, when you feel guilt over sin, what do you do? And I, and I think all of us, whether we would call it sin or not, all of us feel guilt. Maybe you call it a mistake, maybe you call it a failure, maybe you call it something else. I call it sin. The Bible calls it sin. What, what, maybe we all feel guilt. What do you do with it? Do you ignore that guilt? Do you distract yourself from it? Try to think happy thoughts? Some of us, you know what we do when we feel guilt? We get to work. We start working to try and pay off the debt. To try and make up for our sin and failures. So, so, so when we renew our efforts to keep God's law better. But the Bible tells us that no one is justified by the keeping of the law. That is, we cannot make ourselves right with God by trying to keep his law better. Even if you kept it perfectly from here on out, someone would still have to pay. Someone would still have to pay for all your failures to keep it in the past. And just just to be clear, you're not going to keep his God law perfectly. Not even for the next hour. Some of us feel like religious rituals, they'll give us some kind of temporary cleansing They'll, 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 if, if we say certain things or we attend certain services or we confess our sins to certain people, somehow those things are going to, to pay for our sins and make us feel better and release some of that guilt. But here's what God tells us at this table. He says, it's finished. Once and for all, he says, here's my body broken for you. Here's my blood that's been spilt. It's a covenant Our coming to this table signifies that we are resting on that, on him and what he has done. 
There's just one more little angle of this I'd like to show you, and then we'll move on to the next point. But Psalm 23, if you may be familiar with it, it's probably the most famous psalm in the whole Bible. There's a portion of that psalm in verse 5 where it says that this person, David, and we can put ourselves in his place. If you're a follower of Christ, you put yourself in David's place. David is speaking to Jesus, and he's saying, you're such a good shepherd. You provide for me. You protect me. You lead me where you want me to go. And then there's this verse in verse 5 where he says to Jesus, he says, you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Who's your worst enemy? Even if I don't know you, I know this. Your worst enemy, you may even be, not even be aware of it, is Satan himself. He hates you more than any human enemy you know. If you struggle with self-loathing, he hates you more than you hate yourself. Your enemy, Satan, wants to see you anxious and worried before God. He wants to see you wondering, have I done enough for God to love me? Have I done enough for him to accept me? He wants you to keep working hard to make God love you. At the table, Jesus says to us, come to me. I'll give you rest. Believe in me. I'll give you rest. In fact, I'll set a table for you right in front of your enemy. So that when we eat the Lord's Supper, we recline with our God in the presence of Satan like, what? What? What can shake the rest? What can shake me out of the peace that I have when my God has set a table before me right in front of my enemy Satan who wants to see me struggle and worry and anxious and working hard to make God love me? Our enemy looks at us at the table and says, they're safe. I can't have them. They've been loved. Loved eternally. Here's another thing that happens when we take the Lord's Supper. So we rest when we come here, but also we come repenting. Repenting. All right. Oh, I didn't mention this before. All these start with R again. They all start with R. In any case, we come repenting. So, so which is it? Do we rest or do we repent? Rest sounds like very like passive. Repenting sounds like it's hard work. Which one is it? Well, it's actually both. We do both. Here's what repenting means. I want you to think about it this way. Repenting has to do with changing direction. Repenting, it, more than that, it has to do with turning back to God himself. Some of us think of repenting as being like turning over a new leaf, trying harder, doing better. Promising we're going to do better. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is not about making new promises. It's about changing direction, turning back to God, turning away from sin and fleeing, running back to God. That's what it's about. So why is God communicating so much to us via food here, via this bread and via this wine? Think about this. Here's one reason. Sin, for us, it's always about looking for satisfaction in something other than God. Sin is always us looking to have our appetites filled by something other than God. We're looking for life and we're looking for sustenance without God himself. And we're looking for for life and for sustenance and things that are actually going to kill us, make us sick. 
Sin is going after food that's going to make you puke and, and will, in fact, kill you in the long run. I, um, just a few weeks ago, uh, uh, some friends were visiting uh, from Jersey. Uh, they, were, they were visiting us here, and they, they, uh, my friend brought a box of uh, the lobster tails. I don't mean the seafood. I mean the Italian pastry. Does anyone know what lobster tails are? They make these pastries in Italian, in Italian bakeries. At least they do in Jersey. I guess they make them in New York, too, right? These things are like they're flaky and they're big and they're so good. And they're filled with this like French cream inside. They're so like rich and decadent and delicious. So my friend comes over, brings a big box of these from this, from this bakery that we knew back home. And, uh, and we eat some together. But we like split them up. I don't know. We were all being kind of dainty that night, I guess. We like split them up. We each ate half. But there's some leftovers that got stuck in my fridge. My friend and his wife went home that night. The next morning, I wake up, and I'm looking for breakfast, right? So I was going to make myself a bowl of oatmeal. I'm getting ready to make the, I had the scooper and everything. And I'm like, wait a second. There's some lobster tails in here. So I go to the fridge. I grab one of these things. It's not quite as flaky as the night before, but it was still delicious. I ate the, the huge, right? So I eat the whole thing. I'm like, that was so good. But I'm like, I don't know what time I'm going to get to have lunch today, so I'm going to eat another one. So I ate another one. It was even better than the first one with a cup of coffee. By like 10.30 that day, my stomach was a wreck. I felt awful. I felt awful. I was like crying to my wife, like, why did I eat that? She's like, mm-hmm, that's what I was going to ask you. And then I told my kids, and even my kids who are like, kids are like candy, 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 just give me candy. Even they were like, you ate two of those things? Are you crazy? I knew it was going to make me sick, to be honest, but it was going to taste so good. So I ate the thing, and I regretted it. Now, and, 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 I, and it did actually remind me of so many decisions that I have made, knowing that immediate pleasure of following through with that decision would, would result in the long term with pain and suffering and regret and guilt. I felt all of that after I ate the lobster tail. <laughs> but I felt so much more pain, regret, and guilt and suffering because of the sinful choices that I've made to try to find satisfaction and nourishment in things other than God. But the fact is that sin is much more dangerous than, than a high-calorie Italian pastry. In fact, my illustration kind of stinks because it's, it's, sin is more like rat poisoning. It's more like cyanide. It's maybe a cyanide-laced lobster tail. Tastes good in the moment. Hurts you in the long run. And God says here at the table, turn away from all of that and come eat with me. After God's people left Egypt where they were enslaved for many years, God frees them from Egypt. Do you know what they soon started doing? after they had been free for a little while, and they're wandering in the desert, they start, well, life starts to get hard for them, very hard. And they start saying, let's go back to Egypt. You know what they started saying? Let's go back to Egypt because there's better food back there. The food is delicious back there. God isn't giving me what I need out here. We're starving. We're eating the same thing, this manna, every day, every day, every day. And this is what sin always is. For those of you who are following Jesus Christ, who have been freed from the power of sin, just like those Israelites were freed from Egypt, and now you're, you're, you're walking with Christ, 
Sin is, when you fall into sin, that's you saying, oh, I can't, it was so much better back there. The food was better. Life was more fun. Can, can I just go back, God? Can I just go back? At the Lord's Supper, we're turning away from our endless search for satisfaction in things other than God. We're repenting. We're coming back and we're saying, Jesus, you have the food I need. More than that, you are the food that I really need. I'm tired of looking elsewhere. Only you can give me what I really, really need. So if we're coming to the table in the way that Jesus calls us to, we're coming repenting, repenting. Let's look at this passage um, once again that that, uh, Chris read for us. I I want us to read just from verse 30 down to verse 33 in Matthew 26. It says there, and when they had sung to him, so this is after Jesus and his disciples take the Lord's Supper together, and afterwards they sung a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then it says, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's saying, later on tonight, we're eating right now. We just finished having a meal together. In a little while, you're all going to abandon me, he says. And then verse 32, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I'll never leave your side. I'll never abandon you. I'll never try to go find satisfaction somewhere else other than you, Jesus. I love you too much, he says. You see, Jesus says right after the eat, you're all going to abandon me. He knows. He knew that it was going to happen. He knew that they were going to try to find satisfaction somewhere else. He knew that they were going to be so scared that they would leave him. But still, he welcomes them. And he welcomes us. He's willing to restore us as we repent and turn back to him. And it's not about making promises. Again, that's what Peter does. Peter makes promises. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Jesus is like, you don't... Really? Really? What Peter didn't know, and what Jesus did know, is that Peter would be the worst traitor of the, well, of the ones that were there at that moment, in that moment, in that conversation. He would betray Christ worse than the other ten would who were there. He'd deny him. Jesus knows this, and yet still he eats with them. And yet still he says, meet me in Galilee. I'm going to receive you back. I'm going to restore you. Repent and turn back to me, and I will restore you. So it's not about making promises to God. It's about acknowledging our sin and collapsing on the Lord. I love the way Jack Miller, this, this, this old preacher, put it. He says, repentance is collapsing on Christ. It's not begging for a second chance. It's not begging for a second chance. We've blown so many second chances. We don't need a second chance. What we need is God's grace to receive us once again and again and again. Jesus knows you at your worst. He knows the worst thing you've ever done. He knows the worst thing you ever will do. And yet he says, come. Come with a heart that's leaning on my promises. Well, the thing is, guys, the, the, the table is a place for sinners. It's, it's the only kind of people accepted here at the Lord's table. But it's sinners who are trusting in Jesus Christ's atoning death. Sinners who are leaning on the finished work of Jesus. In fact, the one thing that should keep us from the Lord's table, if you identify yourself as a Christian and you've trusted in Christ, the only thing that should keep you from coming from the, to this Lord's table 
is if you are unwilling to repent of your sin. If you're unwilling to leave behind something in your life that's going on right now, there's some way that you're seeing satisfaction in ways that God says is going to kill you. You're rejecting Christ and trying to find sustenance elsewhere. And he's saying to you, turn away from that. And you're like, no, I won't. I won't. There's a willful determination in your heart to continue in sin. If that's where you're at, then don't come to this table because this table is a place for sinners, but it's a place for us to repent and turn away from everything else and come back and seek to find nourishment in Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, he's rebuking the church there really in Corinth. And he says to them, when you come to this table, examine yourself. Examine yourself before you come. And, and, and here's what I think he means by that. He's saying, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you, are you turning away from sin? He's not saying, did you have a good week? He's not saying, examine yourself by saying, how was my week? Did I do well? Did I read my Bible a lot? Was I kind of mean to my... It's not that. It's about this. Are you an honest, open relationship with God? Are you in honest, open relationship with God where you've confessed your sins and, and you've, you've put them out there and you're turning back to him? If that's where you're at, then, then eat the bread and drink the cup. Two more things. We'll get through these faster. Two more things. One, when we eat the Lord's Supper, we are receiving nourishment. We're receiving nourishment. Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The Lord's Supper communicates this to us too. Because Jesus tells us at this table, I'm the food you need. I'm the only one that can satisfy you. And, and, and we're agreeing with him when we come. Remember, we're repenting, we're turning away from other kinds of food, and we're saying, we need to feed on you. And, and, and we're, we're speaking truth to ourselves as we do that. But more than that's happening here. Jesus is spiritually present with us in all of this. He's present with us. Jesus uses this simple ordinance. When it's done in faith, when we come He nourishes our faith. He he strengthens us here. So it doesn't mean that we need to sit there trying to work up more fervent love for Jesus, work up more emotionally kind of wrought faith in Christ. It's not that. We come with a simple dependence on him, and as we take part in this, he actually meets with us. And he builds us up in our faith. This is what, what theologians in the church for years have called a means of grace. A means of grace. That means it's, it's a way, it's a conduit, an instrument through which God gives grace to his people. Like when you read God's word, that's a means of grace. It's a way that God extends grace to you. When you in prayer, when you're praying, God is meeting with you and he's extending grace. In fellowship, being with brothers and sisters in Christ and, and encouraging one another, that's a means of grace. It's something that God uses to, to give you what you need. Same thing here. It doesn't mean it's magical. I said this last week. We don't do anything to this bread. It's not magical bread. I don't even know where we buy it. I guess I should, I should find out. I don't know where we buy it. I know that we don't cast any magical spells over it. There's no signs or nothing. We pray. We bless it. 
thanking God for it and saying, God, use this simple stuff to do miraculous things in our hearts. To actually make us love you more. Not because the, the juice and the bread somehow change us, but because God's grace changes us. And he has promised to meet us here at his table. We don't find rescue in this ritual, but it's also not just a symbolic. It's not just a symbol. It's, it's more than that. There's mystery here. There's, there's grace being given to us when we take part by faith. If you're spiritually hungry, if you are unsatisfied by what you thought would fill you, God comes to you and says, blessed are you if you are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. In Christ, you will be satisfied. I want to read this passage to you from Isaiah 55, and we'll jump to the last point. We'll close down. Isaiah 55 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without a price. How do we buy milk? How do we buy food with no money? It's already been paid for. It's already been bought. We come and receive it. We can imagine Christ himself speaking these words to us in Isaiah 55, even as we come up here and take this bread and take this cup. Free food. Who, lo- who doesn't love free food, right? Someone brings some food to the office, if you work in an office. What do people do? They find time to get in that room and get some food, right? There's no shame. You pile up your plate. You should have no shame. You enjoy it. God says, here, look, free food. It's free for you, but it has been bought at tremendous price by me for you. Bought by the death of my own son. Offered to us freely. Last thing. Last thing. I want us to see that happens when we come to the Lord's Supper. When we eat the Lord's Supper, we are rehearsing for a future feast. Or we might say we're rehearsing for a future supper Look at these words in Revelation 19, verses 6 and 9. This is John writing this. John is one of Christ's friends, one of his disciples, who was there on that night when Jesus instituted this meal and first offered it to his friends. And he was there when Jesus Christ died on the cross, and he was there to see Jesus when Jesus resurrected from the dead. And here in Revelation, he's writing about a vision that he experienced that God revealed to him. It says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself Ready. You see what God had done for John. He had, he had pulled back the curtains of time to let John look into the future and see what was ahead. To, to see uh, a little further down there, down the storyline of what God is going to do. And he shows John, here's what's awaiting you and every other person who loves my son and is a friend of Jesus. 
The marriage of the Lamb has come. And in verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said these things to me. These are the true words of God. You see, there's a feast coming that all of Christ's friends are invited to. There's a supper coming that all of Jesus' people will be seated at. And that means that if you are in Christ by faith, then you have a place at that table. Not just there's room at the table for you, there is a place at the table for you. A place. You ever been to a, 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 a dinner party where there's little cards put out with people's names on them? And you know exactly where you're going to sit because your name's there? It's kind of fancy, right? But it, but it also communicates something heartwarming. It communicates something powerful to you, perhaps. There's a place here that's been reserved for you. Specifically for you. When my kids come with us to a wedding, they're always really excited to find the name card and put it in the place and sit down there and say, this is my spot. Because, you know, kids like to fight over spots, right? They put this card down and say, this is clearly mine. It's been reserved for me. Each seat, your seat, has been bought with a price at this wedding supper. And every time that you come to this table, we're getting ready for that. One author he says he calls this a dress rehearsal for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Remember when Jesus gathered with his disciples on the night he was betrayed and he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer? He says, he goes on to say, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying this Passover meal I'm, suppo- I'm about to eat with you, it points back to something that happened a thousand years ago in Egypt. But more than that, this meal points ahead. It's a precursor to another meal that we're all going to share together. This meal, me and my people, Jesus and all his friends, is not going to happen again until, until Jesus returns. And we sit down at his table and we're welcomed. What is that going to look like? I have no idea what that's going to look like. But I know this, Jesus makes a big deal about it. I end up talking about it often because I think it's one thing, it's what I look forward most to in life than anything. And I think Jesus wants it that way. Jesus wants us to look into the future and remember every time we come to this table to remember. One day he will welcome all of us and we will sit face to face with him And he will look at us and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I've been waiting for you. I have loved you. Let's eat together. Here it's a little piece of bread and it's a little cup. You might even ask, what what kind of supper is this? This is no supper. Barely a snack. So small. But I think that's, that's intentional. It's kind of the point. Because you see, the, the simplicity and, and, and smallness of this meal is meant to, to, to make us long for the grandness and the glory and the size of the feast that's coming. Where you will hear your Savior say, I have earnestly desired to share this meal with you. I've been preparing it for you. 
Let's eat. I've, um, I've been preaching here at New Hope for a little over a year now. And my goal over the time that I've been here and into the future is to preach Christ crucified. To preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, and um, of course, connected with that message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is Jesus risen from the dead. And it's Jesus returning to make all things new. And so I want to keep talking more and more about the fact that Jesus is, in fact, going to return to make all things new. And one of the reasons I want us to to keep talking about that is because I believe that Jesus makes a big deal about it. He talks about that often to his disciples. But I also want us to talk about it because I think that many of us, maybe we are in seasons of joy. Maybe you are experiencing such joy in your life. Things are so peaceful, so good. I want you to be reminded it gets better. Greater joy awaits you in Christ But maybe this has been a season of suffering and pain. And it just seems like it doesn't end. And I want you to know, Christ wants you to know, that he will turn your sadness into laughing. He will turn your grief into deep, deep delight. He will satisfy you. He has promised it. And the supper tells us so. Again and again. He will turn your moans into laughing. Like I said, this Lord's Supper is very simple. But there's rich beauty in it. Rich beauty. So as we come to the Lord's table today, I want to invite you to rest in what Jesus Christ has done. I want you to to repent and turn away from those other things that you've been seeking sustenance and satisfaction in. I want you to receive nourishment as Christ himself meets you here and gives you what you need. As you do all that, we're rehearsing for a bigger feast, a better feast, to which we will come empty-handed, but we also come invited and welcomed. Please pray with me. Lord, um, at the end of the day, we want to experience uh, nearness to you. We want to grow in our faith and grow in our joy. We want to grow in intimacy with you. So so we come to this table not expecting um, automatic things to happen. We're not expecting magic. But what we are expecting is for you to meet with us. Would you please do that? Help us to come to your table, Lord, not with renewed commitments to do better as much as we come with a desperate, collapsing faith in you. Help us to turn away from everything else that that seeks to attract us and deceive us and promises to fulfill us. Feed us here, Lord, we pray. And even as you feed us, Lord, build a deeper longing to know you more and to experience the fullness of joy that we will experience one day when we see you face to face. It's in your name we pray. Amen.